Strex Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. Our guest today is Justin Mullis. He's associated with the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and has done a lot of intense research into the sociology of cryptozoology and other subjects. Hello, Justin. Hi, Scott. Nice to be here. Yes. Um, I, I thank you for coming on. Now I'll let you explain your uh, degrees and background yourself because it'll probably be easier. Sure. So, um, so as you said, yes, yeah, so I just introduce myself again. So, my name is Justin Mullis. Um, so, I am a incoming uh, PhD candidate at Bowling Green. A university in Ohio starting this fall and uh, my prior educational background is at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in religious studies. Uh, the focus of my research was on the intersection of religion and popular culture which took a couple of uh, different uh, routes but in particular I was interested in how um, religion uh, feeds into popular culture, how popular culture takes ideas from religion to create fictional stories, and how in turn then religion will go and borrow from popular culture to construct its, its sort of belief systems and its theologies. So you'll get this kind of feedback loop between the two of them. And uh, that in turn led into uh, the nature of, of this show. Um, that in turn led into some of my research into cryptozoology in particular is a topic that I've uh, had a long-standing interest in ever since I was a kid. Um, I've got books from the public library on the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and that kind of stuff. I watched all of the documentaries on television and taped them and everything, but I, I didn't really do anything with it academically until about two years ago. Uh, I was approached by a scholar in our field, um, in the field of religious studies, Daryl Catterin, uh, who had done some work on the subject of the paranormal uh, from a religious studies perspective. And he was putting together a book for Routledge for their Studies in Religion series on the paranormal and popular culture with another uh, scholar, John W. Moorhead, who I'm friends with. And uh, Daryl wanted somebody to write the chapter for that book on cryptozoology. And he'd heard from some mutual friends of ours uh, that I was somebody who was in this field, who knew about this subject, um, even though I hadn't prior, I, I had no prior publications concerning it before this. And, and he approached me and asked me if it was something I'd want to do. And I said yes. And so I, I wrote this essay entitled Crypto Fiction, um, which talked about how uh, cryptozoology has been influenced by science fiction and in turn has influenced science fiction and therefore has created the same sort of feedback loop that you also see more broadly with religion and popular culture. And so I, I wrote that. It was published early 2019. And when I was working on that essay in tandem with uh, some other stuff I was doing, I also taught at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte for about a year. And while I was there, I taught a course that I designed on uh, the intersection of religion and uh, paleontology, actually. 
And so we had a, a lot of discussions in that class about cryptozoology. We talked, we had a whole unit on the Loch Ness Monster. Um, so in, in tandem with both of those things, it got me looking at this subject again and got me really interested in certain aspects of it. And one of the things that I hit on, which I, I, you've said that you want me to talk about today, is uh, this interesting relationship between cryptozoology and one of our founding fathers here in the United States, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Actually, there, I discovered that there is quite a substantial link between Jefferson and cryptozoology. And I found this to be so fascinating and so interesting that it sort of shifted to a certain degree uh, my PhD prospects and aspirations. And uh, I decided I was going to write my doctoral thesis on Jefferson and these ideas of monsters in the early American Republic. And so that's what I'm going to be doing uh, starting this fall at Bowling Green uh, in, uh, in American cultural studies there. So uh, that, that's kind of just the basics sort of, of, of what I do, my background, and, and how I got involved in, in the subject of cryptozoology. I guess I should probably go ahead and, and preface just one last thing for listeners just so we're completely upfront about everything, which is so my position on cryptozoology is I, I find it fascinating, but I consider myself sort of uh, philosophically a cryptozoology agnostic. So I don't see it as my place to argue for or against whether or not things like Nessie or Bigfoot exist. Um, that's for other people to do. Um, though functionally in my writing, I guess I'm more of a cryptozoology atheist because I write about these things as if they're just simply ideas or modern folklore. Um, so, which I, yeah. I feel is, is more of a neutral position. Until we find a type specimen for some of these creatures, they are ideas. They're theoretical concepts that might potentially exist. You know, I mean, that's just the facts on the ground. Right. Yeah, so I I completely understand. And you're having to take an objective viewpoint in, or in order to do the work you're doing. You have to remain objective. Yeah, that's always the struggle. I mean, you know, in, in academia, there's a lot of discussion about the importance of remaining objective in your in your pursuits in your inquiries and you know it's something that's very difficult to do there has to be a certain acknowledgement that nobody is ever truly objective because you always have certain aims and biases but I think that there are definitely steps that you can take to try and remain particularly objective in, in certain cases um, you know and in in the case of writing about cryptozoology for me that's simply the fact that you know I'm not here to make the argument that, you know, such and such cryptid exists, and I'm not here to make the argument that it doesn't exist. And I read the literature produced by people on both sides, and, uh, you know, from people who consider themselves cryptozoologists who absolutely believe these things are out there, and from people who are died-hard, capital S, skeptics, uh, who don't believe that they exist. Yep. And I think that there are frankly, problems on both sides um, because of those, those methodologies, because of those, um, those kinds of assertions. And one of the things that I'm really fascinated in, uh, especially, 
is how much those kinds of uh, ideologies actually line up at times. Um, so these people think that they're very diametrically opposed to one another, and yet for some reason seem to sometimes come to remarkably similar conclusions. So. Yeah, well, I, I move back and forth between both uh, groups. I have friends in both camps, and because I try to remain somewhat neutral and move between the two camps, I take a lot of flack from people on both sides. But I figure, you know, it's the most productive stance to take at this point in time. And if these animals exist... Whether we believe in them or not, it's not going to make any difference. If they really exist, theoretically, we will find them someday. So I try not to worry about it, you know? Yeah. You know, so I, I think that as long as you can have sort of, you know, a, um, you know, a, a, for regardless of your position, you know, if you're willing to be fair about it and you're willing to have a, a, a willingness to have an open dialogue and talk about it, you know, and, and share and exchange information, then you don't have anything to lose. And in, in fact, you have a lot to be gained, you know, which is, you know, part of the reason why I'm here, because obviously, I guess if it's not obvious, you know, I mean, part of the reason I'm, I'm here today on this show, you know, is that me and you have known each other for a little while, uh, you know, yeah. through some mutual friends. And I just want to say also, you know, I mean, you've been a great uh, resource, in my own research, uh, you've been very generous and, and very professional with, you know, providing material. So. I'm glad I could help, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I respect you too, and I find your work very interesting as well. Thank you. So do you want to, does uh, Benjamin Franklin have any connection to this cryptozoology Thomas Jefferson thing? Uh, so, yeah, um... Not necessarily, so, so J Franklin does, um, it's something that I'm only just starting to get into. Obviously, as I pursue this line of work, there's going to be a lot of uh, trying to suss out how many sort of figures in early America had interests in this kind of stuff or, or ties to this kind of stuff. Um, Benjamin Franklin is interesting because he's already been tied to cryptozoology in a, in a sense, by uh, another scholar, um, historian Brian Regal, uh, who, so, uh, I'm sorry? I said I'm familiar with Brian Regal's work. I've read a lot of his stuff, his Sasquatch book, his Jersey Devil article. Yeah, so, so. Stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, so Brian Regal, yeah, he, he wrote this really wonderful book, um, you know, uh, you know, I think more than a decade back now or so called Searching for Sasquatch. And um, just a few years back, he put out a book uh, called The Secret History of the Jersey Devil, uh, which was a, a sort of um, longer version of a couple articles that he'd published where he'd made the argument that the legend of the Jersey Devil can be traced back to a dispute um, that uh, between Benjamin Franklin and a member of the Leeds family, who is the family that's usually tied to the Jersey Devil, right? Sometimes also called the Leeds Devil. And so that this seemed to have this, this legend of this sort of demonic entity in the New Jersey Pine Barrens had a connection to uh, 
you know, has, has, came out came out of a basically slander towards the Leeds family on the part of Benjamin Franklin. So that's one connection between Franklin and and cryptozoology that's been established. Um, I, I think that Regal uh, makes a, a pretty persuasive argument. I think his argument's a little bit more persuasive in his articles than it is in the book necessarily, oddly enough. Um, but uh, the other thing is, um, I don't know if you're familiar. Are you familiar with a, a historian, another historian by the name of Von Scriber? No. So Von Scriber, um, he's, I, I'm not sure how long he's been in, uh, in academia exactly. I haven't, I, I've, I've talked to Regal before via email correspondence. He's a very nice guy, by the way. Uh, Von Scriber, I have not. I have not reached out to him yet. I may in the future. But um, he's, he just published his first book not that long ago having to do with the Revolutionary War. But he's got a second book out, or a second book that's supposed to be coming out at the end of this year. Um, I guess assuming that it doesn't get delayed with everything going on right now. But he's got another book coming out at the end of this year on mer people. So, um, which is, uh, he's published three articles, I believe, on this subject, and I've read two of them. I have all of them. But, um, you know, he's, it's, it's basically this question about, you know, why did people during, um, the 1700s and before and after into like the 1800s. I'm not sure the exact span of, of the book entirely because obviously it hasn't come out yet. But, you know, why did people believe in mermaids and mermen um, as real creatures? Uh, because they did for a time. And I guess, you know, some people today still do. And uh, yeah. so... Uh, I know. I know. In one of the two articles that I've read by Scriber, one of the people that he talks about very briefly is Benjamin Franklin. That Franklin had published articles in uh, some of, I believe, the newspapers that he was he was running at the time out of Philadelphia, where he would report sightings of mermen or mermaids, um, and he seemed to give a lot of credence to them. So I'm interested in checking out that book. I'm, I'm hoping that I can review it. Uh, when it comes out uh, later this year, and uh, seeing what Scriber has to say on this subject, the articles that I've read by him are really fascinating. Um, you know where well, he's check. done. Um, yeah, he's done some real digging into that into that subject. So yeah. Brian Regal also wrote a great article about Richard Owen and the Sea Serpent. If you haven't seen that, I have. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I have. I've seen. I've seen. I've, I think I've read about all of Regal's articles at this point. But yeah, I've read his one on Owen and the Sea Serpent controversy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I guess. So this, some... this is a discovery of the mammoths of Big Bone Lake figure into your Thomas Jefferson narrative. Yeah, absolutely. So the so the Jefferson research kind of came about because I was doing this course back in 2016 at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte called uh, Religion, Culture, and Dinosaurs. Um, so, which is a very well received course, and I, I hope I get to teach it again in the future. I'm going to try and teach and see if they'll let me teach something similar at Bowling Green. Um, so the uh, but so one of the 
books that I use primarily is this uh, fantastic book that came out back in 1998 called The Last Dinosaur Book by a scholar from the University of Chicago, W.J.T. Mitchell. And Mitchell basically, Mitchell is uh, he's an iconologist, so he studies the history of images. And he was, he, he wrote this book basically asking, you know, why are we obsessed with dinosaurs and kind of tracking them visually through, um, you know, time. And he actually applies a lot of scholars from religious studies to his work, um, specifically uh, people like Merce Eliada and, uh, and similar, uh, similar individuals who are sort of foundational religious scholar, uh, studies scholars, you know, because he's asking questions about certain images and power. Mitchell makes this argument that dinosaurs are he calls them the totem animals of modernity, right? That they've become kind of sacred for us in a way, right? They've become um, they've become our new dragons. So yeah, say that. And uh, uh, and and it's it's a really great book. There are some issues with it. There's actually another book that was just published um, a year or two ago. Now I'm not. I can't remember. Um, I think it was late 2018 uh, by a, another scholar, Borea Sachs, who does animal-human relations, and he published a book that I also recommend called Dinomania, uh, where it's basically him going back to Mitchell's uh, work, you know, now almost 10 years later, and kind of giving it a, a sort of lookover and evaluation. He points out some problems with it. But he also points out what he thinks Mitchell got right and kind of builds on it. And he has some interesting things to say in there about cryptozoology as well. But so the to, to get back to the question at hand, yeah, so Mitchell in The Last Dinosaur Book has this chapter where he talks about paleontology in early America. And he talks about Thomas Jefferson. And... This was something that I thought was very interesting, and I started to dig into it. And sure enough, any book or article that you read that talks about the history of vertebrate paleontology in early America almost inevitably starts with Thomas Jefferson, because Jefferson was, you know, Jefferson and Roosevelt were probably the only two presidents we've ever had that you could be described roughly as scientists, not professionally, but definitely in sort of spirit and uh advocation right it's, it's something that they wanted to do and you um, mean teddy or fbr uh te yeah definitely yeah teddy so okay yeah that makes yeah, sense yeah. yeah so teddy roosevelt um so who, who some people claim had a bigfoot encounter so but uh yep yep hey with that but, but it also said he was going to go to africa to hunt the brontosaurus too yeah um I, I believe I've heard that, yeah. So, yeah, going to look for, yeah, Mokele Mumembe, so. But, um, but so, yeah, so when I started going through all of this material that I could find, and there was admittedly a quite substantial amount of material relating to Jefferson's interest in, in what would become paleontology, um, and this is, of course, all in the, the 1700s, so well before, you know, Mary Anning or William Buckland or any of them in England start finding uh, fossils, right? So Jefferson is, is getting interested in these, these weird bones that are being found in what is today Big Bone Lick in Kentucky. Um, they're being pulled out of the ground. 
and he gets interested in trying to solve this mystery of what they are. And what I found really interesting in all these, these sources that I was looking at was that, you know, they're talking about Jefferson as kind of a pioneering paleontologist. And then almost kind of an as an afterthought, some of them would mention he seemed to think that they were still alive. And I was like, you know, I started kind of pulling at that thread because I got curious about that. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like, all these people are mentioning it, but, like, none of them want to give it any attention. And what is going on here? And the more I pulled at it, the more stuff kept kind of coming out where, you know, it was, um, it was, you know, where it was, yeah, it was, you know, Jefferson, during the time that Thomas Jefferson was alive, you know, nobody had really contemplated the idea of extinction. It just wasn't something that anybody had considered. Uh, that whole reams of animal life could, uh, you know, have, have died out or, or disappear, and it wouldn't be something that people would, uh, would really come to terms with and, you know, until sometime in the 19th century. And I think that there's an argument that could be made that to a large extent people still haven't come completely to terms with it. Um, but, you know, at Jefferson's, in Jefferson's time, this was, this was a, a radical suggestion and Jefferson didn't buy it. You know, he didn't think that animals could become extinct. And, and part of the reason for this was that this kind of, you know, rubbed up against his religious beliefs and, and Jefferson was a deist, uh, which for people who aren't familiar with that, Jefferson believed that there was a God that had created the universe and had set it in motion, but that was it. Um, he didn't do miracles. He didn't intervene. He didn't come to earth and die for our sins. He didn't deliver prophecies or revelations. None of that was God's business. God was simply the creator. They, they often likened him to sort of a divine watchmaker. He had made the universe. He'd wound it up and he'd let it go. And because he was God, this was his creation was perfect and therefore it would never break, it would never wear down, it would never decay. And so, obviously, if that was the case, then the idea of extinction didn't make sense. It didn't add up for, for people like Jefferson. And so he was very opposed to this notion, and he decided that he was going to try to prove that these animals were still alive. And he had, he had other reasons. I would argue that his deistic convictions were not even his primary reasons. Um, his, his main reason was that he was in a spat with a French intellectual named uh, Georges-Louis Leclerc, the Count of Buffon, who had had the audacity, uh, without ever having set foot in North America, to claim that the New World was zoologically inferior to the Old World. Um, and so, and that nothing good would ever come out of, of North America or the Americas as a result. And Jefferson was incensed by this and he wanted to prove Buffon wrong. And so these, these kinds of goals for him came together in his determination that he was going to prove that the animal who these bones had come from was still alive. And, and today we know that that animal was a mastodon. But at the time, they had, that name hadn't been coined yet. It wouldn't be coined until the late 1700s, early 1800s by uh, Georges Cuvier, another French scientist often regarded as the father of paleontology. 
I believe Cuvier was responsible for bringing in a lot of the concepts of extinction, if I remember correctly. Yes, yes, he was. Yeah, Cuvier was the was the first person to really make a very vigorous and what was deemed scientifically credible argument for extinction. Um, which, by the time Cuvier had come along uh, and achieved prominence, you know, so many fossil vertebrates had been found um, and were being found that you know, for Cuvier, he felt that this was you know, it was just not feasible to, to argue anymore that there were animals that hadn't gone extinct, though the ar argument would persist, you know, into the 19th century. But yeah, so yeah. in Jefferson's day, they didn't know that it was a, um, a mastodon. Uh, they called it an incognitum, so literally the unknown animal. So as I, I like to point out, you know, just based on the kind of etymology alone, right, the unknown animal, the incognitum by default becomes the original cryptid, right, so, which are hidden or unknown animals. I read that he, uh, he, when he sent Lewis and Clark out, he sent them also out looking not just for elephants, but for the ground sloths, too. That's correct. That's absolutely right, because that is what ends up happening, right? So, Jefferson becomes determined to find this incognitum to find this species of American elephant alive. Um, and he, he does a lot kind of his, of his own investigation uh, to the best of his abilities. You know, he's of course tied up with the, the starting of America as a country and the formation of the government. So he's very limited in what he's able to do. Um, you know, so, and at times he's out of the country because after the Revolutionary War, he ends up as the ambassador to France, and so he's living over there for uh, quite some time, which also gave him the opportunity to meet and debate Buffon face-to-face. Uh, -face. But, um, yeah, he, you know, he, he does some of this work himself by going out and collecting Native American uh, myths and legends, right, which uh, some of them are directly associated with the bones at Big Bone Lick, and some of them are just things that Jefferson thinks sounds like they might be his incognitum. So, you know, for example, he finds a lot of different tribes who have a legend about what they call the big buffalo, which is a, a creature that, you know, is um, basically a, a, a giant monster, right? Almost a kind of, you know, like a Japanese kaiju in a way. It's this huge creature. It, it rains down all kinds of death and destruction on the, the uh, Native American villages and, and settlements, you know, destroys the animal life. And then according to, you know, the, the different legends, uh, some tribes would say that it was eventually driven off, you know, into parts unknown. Some would say that it was killed by the great man in the sky, right, one of their gods. Um, and of course, you know, Jefferson, you know, sort of ruled out the latter because he doesn't believe in divine intervention. And, you know, he really liked the, the former, this idea that it had been driven off somewhere into the expanses of North America. And that was an argument that he repeatedly marshaled, which was that, you know, uh, because so much of North America had been unexplored by, by white men, by Europeans, uh, you know, he would say that we were in no position to say what did and didn't exist in the American interior. Um, and that becomes, of course, part of his motivation following the Louisiana Purchase for dispatching Lewis and Clark. And he gives them 
uh, very specific instructions to look for animals, quote, deemed rare or extinct, um, which includes the, the incognitum or the, at that time they had started using the term mammoth. So Jefferson said mammoth and also then the megatherium or the giant ground sloth, which is interesting because that's another case where Jefferson had been able to do some real kind of hands-on investigation because uh, there had been some bones found in a cave in Greenbrier, West Virginia. Um, and they were sent to Jefferson and they were just mostly uh, claw bones. And Jefferson, you know, as a kind of an amateur paleontologist, you know, zoologist deduced that these must have been the claws of a giant cat. He thought it was some kind of lion or, or tiger. Um, and it, it's worth pointing out, he's not the only one who, who thought that. When the first giant ground sloth bones were found in South America and sent back to Spain, the anatomists who looked at them there actually came to the same conclusion. It, it wouldn't be until Cuvier got a hold of them with his you know, pioneering method of uh, the principle of the correlations of parts, as he called it, or what we today call comparative anatomy, that anybody, that Cuvier was the first one to piece together, these were actually the bones of a huge sloth. So, but Jefferson was convinced that these were the bones of a lion, and he did the exact same thing uh, that he had done with the incognitum, which is that he went down and he collected uh, Native American legends. He collected reports from settlers who claimed that they'd been, you know, stalked in the woods by some kind of huge animal with glowing red eyes. Um, he found reports of, of people who said their horses and livestock had been killed, and he used all of this, and he, he wrote and uh, presented uh, a paper to the American Philosophical Society, which he was also president of at the time. This is uh, during the time he's vice president of the United States as well. Um, you know, he presents this paper arguing that there must be this giant unknown species of big cat living somewhere in the American interior. And of course, you know, once again is, is saying, you know, how can anybody argue that the new world is inferior to the old zoologically when we have creatures as impressive as this big cat, which is, you know, funny on multiple levels because A, Buffon was dead by that point. Um, so, you know, he's arguing with a ghost and B, uh, you know, he's talking about how great America is for an animal that ultimately didn't exist. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, that uh, Lewis and Clark found the remains of either a Mosasaur or a Plesiosaur. There's debate about which one it was that they took to be the bones of a giant fish. Yeah, I've read that. Um, I believe in, uh, I can't remember the name of the author. You might know, but yeah, the book um, Oceans of Kansas. So. Oh, uh, Mike Everhart. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I but, remember... I, read about that yeah have you um have you done any research into the Jacques Marquette expedition where they saw the Piasaw and they also encountered um primitive fish and a swimming uh cougar that they thought were water monsters I uh, no I don't believe I'm familiar with this what was the name of that this was an expedition by a French missionary up into Michigan around the Straits of Mackinac in around 1673, 
and they went up the Mississippi to Alton, Illinois, and saw the Piasaw bird carting petroglyph on the side of a. Oh, okay. Cliff. Gotcha. Okay, okay. Oh, all right. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm familiar with, with that. Yeah. Before Lewis and Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Late you know, 1800s. Right. Yeah, I've done I've done some reading on that, um, but but not not a lot. That's definitely something that when I'm I'm going forward with a lot of the the research I'm planning on doing, I know that there's got to be a whole kind of preface about um, you know you know the the I, the uh, experiences of people before Jefferson in the New World in terms of you know fabulous creatures or cryptids or monsters, you know what they thought was out there and, and yeah there's definitely you get a lot of very interesting uh, stories from early missionaries French missionaries in in the United what's today the United States or in parts of Canada about things that they there's, allegedly saw there's a lot of monster war in Samuel B. Champlain's journals from his right. exploration yeah, yeah ab absolutely you know definitely yeah, in, in Champlain's stuff as well so yeah you find a you find a lot of that, so and it's it's really something to uh, you know puzzle over and try and figure out you know what exactly you know are they are they seeing if they're seeing anything what they're experiencing you Some know of what and, are, are known animals today you know primitive right. things like stepping turtles and big sturgeons and gars and things like that you know yeah absolutely so. um a lot of that stuff is uh. In um, Late Monster Traditions by Michelle Milger and Claude Gagnon. Yeah, I, I love that book. I, I think very highly of it. So um, it's it's one that I go back to constantly. I'm just sort of in awe, especially the kind of the sort of uh, introduction or, or preface chapter by Merger. Um, I'm just kind of in awe of, of a lot of the things that he puts together in there and some of the insights that he has um and it, it actually motivated me um you know I've, I've tracked down a lot of the articles because he's, he's a french folklorist and as far as i can tell he's still alive though nobody seems to know where he is i've, I've tried to actually track him down so that i could try to open up a line of correspondence with him and um nobody who would seem to know has any idea so but you know he doesn't he doesn't appear to have passed away um yeah. but most of his works in french obviously and uh you know he's lake monster traditions is like i think his only book that's in english and then he has a handful of articles that he published over the years mostly in like 14 times and yeah. some of their publications and so i've i've tried to track all of those down yeah i've also and, read the American version of the book is heavily edited and it's very different from the original French version. That the original right. language version is, a, is more pro-cryptozoology than the English language version is. Yeah, um, I've, I've heard that before. I've read, I know uh, Lauren Coleman wrote a pretty extensive and, and interesting article for his, his uh, for the, the website Cryptomundo, I believe, at one point where he kind of talked about the publication history of Lake Monster Traditions. And, you know, he, he does talk about the fact that, 
you know, when it was published in English, Merger uh, was very enthused about that and wanted to do a lot of very heavy, heavy editing and revision and that apparently there were some disagreements between him and um and gagon about you know sort of the the approach of it and it is worth pointing out that for the english language edition right it says on the cover lake monster traditions and then in big letters michelle merger and then in much smaller letters underneath with claude gagon so yeah um and and you know there's there's some other there's probably some other issues that went but i i did i did buy um about a year ago michelle merger i know wrote a, a book uh that came out in the early 2000s um on the history of dragons uh, and kind of like the cryptozoological approach to dragons and so i bought a copy of that book about a year ago and i've been slowly translating into english myself so um, I don't know what I'm going to do with that, other than the fact that it's been very useful for my own research. So, so what is um, Thomas Jefferson's connection to the sea serpent? So Thomas Jefferson. So yes. Yeah, so, so in addition to the the mammoths or, or mastodons and the the megatherium, uh, Jefferson has a connection at least to a, a couple other kind of cryptids. Uh, one of them just real briefly is which you don't hear about a lot is this idea of sort of like giant 12 foot tall moose living up in in sort of the northern part of new england or the country what's sometimes called the king moose or the ghost moose and there has been a book written about that um by a scholar lee allen dudkins uh, called jefferson the giant moose which i i highly recommend but um the other thing that's really interesting and and probably particularly of interest to to you and, and people listening to this show that are interested in lake monsters and sea monsters is um, so uh, historian W. Scott Poole, uh, who um, I've had I've had some also some interactions with and who also seems to be a very, very nice guy, uh, wrote a book several years ago that I think now is in its second edition called uh, Monsters in America which is a, a fascinating sort of book where he wanted to write basically the history of the United States from, you know, the pilgrims all the way up to the present day. But he wanted to do it talking about monsters and what monsters we have been afraid of or obsessed with at different points in history. And he talks a lot about sea monsters in that book by his own admission in the, in the preface because he's interested in them. Um, but, uh, one of the things that he talks about is that, um, prior to the, the famous three year kind of spat of sea, of sea serpent sightings in Gloucester Harbor in Massachusetts, um, you had what was known as, uh, the embargo act, right? Where, so Jefferson, um, was severely restricting, uh, trade deals going on in American ports, and there are various political reasons for this. Um, but essentially, you know, he was, he was uh, hurting the shipping industry in Massachusetts and garnering a lot of resentment for this. And uh, apparently it became quite common, according to Poole, for, uh, 
you know, for uh, people to, to start to say that they would rather have their waters infested with sea serpents than with Jefferson's political policies. And there wow. are even uh, political cartoons that exist um, showing, you know, the embargo act personified as a sea monster, either a sea serpent or in some cases a big turtle, um, you know, attacking people who are in, you know, classical sort of political cartoon symbology that are supposed to represent kind of like the sailors or the, the merchant class of, of Massachusetts, right? You know, and yep. I thought that this was really interesting. And that was the whole reason I reached out to Poole and opened a line of correspondence with him because he brings all this up and then he doesn't, at least I felt he didn't really make anything of it. And so I reached out to him and I, I asked him, I said, you know, I, I want to use this in my research, but I don't want to misrepresent your position. Are you suggesting that, you know, this, you know, this situation with the Embargo Act kind of helped to prime, you know, the people of, of Gloucester, Massachusetts for, you know, seeing sea serpents? And Poole's response to that was, he goes, no, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. He goes, I just think that it's a funny coincidence. Um, which, you know, I told him, and I've, I've said this before uh, elsewhere, that, you know, you know that's fine. Um, I don't know if it's that much of a coincidence. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, pursuing this line of, of argumentation. And that's caused me to do a lot of, of reading then and research now into the Gloucester Sea Serpent and what exactly yeah. was going on there. And interestingly... To my, knowledge, to, to my knowledge, the earliest report that I know of from that general area was from 1639. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. There's, um, I, I think, I think at this point I've read, um, the, the, like, three books that have kind of been dedicated to this, um, so, and, and yeah, you know, there are definitely reports going back. Of, of sea serpents, um, you know, but that it's that it's that particular you know flap there in, in the early 1800s in Gloucester that's yeah. really remarkable. I mean, you have something like yes, yeah, you have something like 200 sightings in like a three-year period. So yeah, you know, in, including ones apparently by multiple eyewitnesses. So it's 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 really fascinating, um, you know, and and. As it turns out, you know, the only other person I know who's made this connection sort of with Jefferson is, if I'm, I'm hoping I'm not mispronouncing his name, you might be familiar, you're probably familiar with him, Scott. But um, is it Wayne Sonny? Um, no, I've never heard the name. Okay. I, again, I might be saying it wrong. I'm not sure. But he wrote a book um, about the Gloucester Sea Serpent. Uh which is, yeah, just called Gloucester's Sea Serpent. I believe I'm saying that right. Wayne Soini or, or Sani, um, where he's the, on, he's the only one that I, I know of who uh, he actually talks about in that book, The Jefferson Connection, because as it turns out, one of the people who was directly involved with a lot of the, the investigation um, was, in fact, uh, an associate of Jefferson's. So, wow. um, and and he makes the argument that 
he would have been very influenced by Jefferson's ideas and, and uh, Jefferson's concerns over these arguments of degeneracy that uh, Buffon and these other European intellectuals had made, saying that you know North America was inferior. And so, again, this idea that if you could prove there was some kind of giant sea serpent or similar creature living off of the American coast, this would just sort of bolster, you know, our, our zoological repertoire. Rep, um, yeah, yeah. So one of the books that you read, was it uh, Jean O'Neill's book? Yes, I did read her book, yep. It's a very good book. Yeah, I, 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 I enjoyed her book a lot. Um, so, and, and more recently, um, I've also read, uh, and I, I managed to review... Um, Robert L. French's book *Disentangled*, also on the Gloucester yep. Sea Serpent, uh, which I, 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 I'm sorry. I think it's rather expensive right now. It is. That is. Uh, I, I highly recommend. It. it is tragically overpriced. Um, I don't. I don't know why. It's. Um, you know. It's a pretty. Uh, you know. It's a relatively thin sort of paperback, and, and you know, other than the fact that it's from a, a academic press in Europe, um, so I, I, I think, do, I, yeah. I do have a lot of his papers, though. Yeah, and you know, I, I really like, um, I really like a lot of French's uh, work and his ideas. I think, um, you know, his uh, he is. Uh, you know, if, if you get a chance to read Disentangled, you know, it's absolutely the case that he is, uh, you know, he, he reviews all of the cryptozoological literature, you know, Hulverman's, Coleman, uh, you know, uh, Oldeman's, everybody, you know, and, and he gives their work, you know, fair and, and equal weight. And, um, you know, I think um, he gives a, uh, you know, a very kind of fair, um, you know, assessment of cryptozoology as a field. So, you know, there's there's a lot that I really liked about that book. Of course, he does not come to the conclusion that the Gloucester sea serpent was a sea serpent or any kind of unknown animal. Um, he proffers, you know, an extant animal identity, which is probably the only part of the book that I'm a little suspicious of for reasons, but... Yeah. Well, you, I'm sure you're familiar with this... Uh... Captain Rich incident where he caught a tuna and was trying yes. to pass that to see something. Yeah. Yeah. So the horse map. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you know, one of the things that I, I really like about um about uh you know uh, disentangled and the rest of you know uh French's work is just the fact that um you know he uh he he also talks a whole lot about you know, this idea of, of again, kind of the, the anxiety over extinction um, in relationship to the notions of, of cryptozoology, um, you know, which I, I think is, is a, you know, ties it back to Jefferson and I think is a really important uh, uh, point of, you know, of, of reference that, you know, because there, there is, as a, as I'm sure you're familiar, obviously, with Darren Nash, um, you know. No one. I'm yeah. doing for you. Okay, yeah. yeah. So you know, I mean, you know, you know, Darren has coined this term, um, you know, the the prehistoric survivor paradigm, where he talks about how there is, 
such an emphasis in cryptozoology to label certain cryptids as prehistoric animals that have somehow survived extinction. So, you know, because there does seem to still be such a, a kind of anxiety over the idea that animals could be extinct. So there's such an eagerness to find examples of, you know, living fossils, as they're called. I think it works, it cuts both ways, that the paleontology community is so confident that these animals are extinct when you start bringing up the idea that they might not be They get a little nervous on their end, too. No, I mean, that's that's probably fair. So, you know, um, definitely. So do you want to um, shift gears and talk about the uh, Nessie movie? At GFAS? Yeah, sure, we can talk about that. That'd be, that'd be a fun uh, change-up. So, um, I guess, yeah, so I guess I'll just kind of... Uh, yeah, just, um, I believe it was Hammer and were together on this, weren't they? Yeah, so, uh, so for people who don't know, um, uh, so Hammer Studios, right, so the British Film Studios, which is famous for... Um, doing, uh, you know, the Hammer Dracula movies with Christopher Lee and the Peter Cushing Frankenstein movies and uh, a lot of uh, that kind of stuff. Um, They, at one point, were talking about um, partnering in the 1970s. They were going to partner with Toho Studios uh, uh, in uh, Japan, so which is famous for the Godzilla... uh, movies and so forth to uh to do a Loch Ness monster movie uh and this film was was tragically never made um but it's it's sort of a fascinating uh example or or sort of a case study inside of the history of an unmade movie and uh it was something that I, I was aware of for a long time I'm a big Godzilla movie fan uh and so you know I'm I'm obsessed with all of that kind of stuff with with Japanese kaiju movies. And so I had mostly known about this, interestingly enough, from kind of the Japanese side of things, uh, from books and articles I'd read that talked about sort of Toho's involvement with this project. And I wasn't as familiar with sort of the uh, hammer side of the story or what may or or may not exist. Um, But uh, late in 20... 18, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Greg Nunman, uh, uh, had contacted me and said that he was going to put together a panel for G-Fest, which is the uh, annual Godzilla convention that takes place in Chicago every year during the summer, usually in June or July. And um, he wanted to do a panel on this unmade... Well, initially, he wanted to do a panel on... Uh, unmade dinosaur movies and he kind of assembled a group of people including myself uh john lemay who is a prolific author um who you should probably have on here because he writes about unmade kaiju movies and monster movies and then he's also now just recently as of late last year published uh the first of a two-volume book on uh cryptozoological dinosaur sightings in the Old West. Um, huh. But so Probably it was me. Things too. Yeah, so um, 
it was uh, me and John and another uh, uh, friend, mutual friend of ours, um, Kevin Darendorf, who has published um, a couple books on, uh, on Japanese science fiction as well. And, um, he, uh, and, and so he got the, the three of us together and we kind of, you know, made the argument that we should sort of narrow it down. And we all decided that what we were most interested in was this unmade Nessie movie. Uh, because John had written about it before in one of his books. Um, Kevin uh, had uh, some access to some Japanese materials that needed translating. And then I was aware of... Um, I, I got really interested in it, actually, when I came across a book entirely by accident in uh, the uni my university library uh, called... Um, I believe it was called Beasts of the Sea, though I might be wrong about that. Um, but it was a collection of essays on sea monsters in popular culture. And uh, one of the essays in there was on um, this unmade Nessie movie by a British uh, film scholar named uh, I.Q. Hunter. And uh, mm. it, was, it was an interesting essay because it had all this information about this film coming entirely from the Hammer Film Archives uh, in Britain, uh, but nothing from the Japanese side of things. And in fact, in the footnotes, Hunter had basically said that he didn't think that there was anything from the Japanese side, and he had kind of discounted, you know, uh, rumors that he'd read on the internet and stuff that, uh, you know, there were you know, storyboards and, you know, maquettes and things that had been made of Nessie and stuff. And uh, so, you know, I thought this was a really, I got really excited after that because I was like, okay, so we're actually being kind of presented with an opportunity here to sort of put together a real complete picture of this movie by sort of pulling our information. And I actually reached out to Hunter um, as well. And, and, you know, we had a very, nice email correspondence and i pointed out to him that actually yes all of these things do exist um you know if you look in in the japanese literature um you can certainly find the storyboards and the maquettes and interviews with people who were involved which it, you know not uh, a specific knock against him or anything i've found this for years now to be true and i, I find it kind of frustrating which is that you know there's this real tendency in the academy to kind of you know, I guess it's, uh, but you know, I'm not sure how universal this is because it doesn't seem universal necessarily. But at least this is my experience in the Western Academy, not to look at stuff going on in the Eastern side of the world um, necessarily. What like Chinese or, or Korean or Japanese academics are doing, um, or writers, and uh, I, I find that I find that frustrating because I think that you're kind of missing part of the picture and it seems particularly odd if you're writing about a movie that was a Japanese co-production but anyway um, you know I and, you know I had asked him if it was possible to get any of the materials that he talked about in this essay and un unfortunately um, you know it it wasn't possible for our purposes because everything in the Hammer archives is still under copyright by Hammer whether the movie was made or not so, you know, usually in, in most cases, 
and I'm sure you're familiar with this, if you're trying to do any kind of archival research or something, you know, you can write to a library or write to somebody involved and ask them to make you, you know, PDFs or photocopies or whatever yep. and send them to you. Um, and uh, and I've, I've done that before with other things related to films. I taught a class actually also in 2017 uh, that dealt with the, the movie King Kong. Uh, and I got lots of material, you know, photocopied and sent to me from Brigham Young University, where all of Marion C. Cooper, the creator of King Kong, where all of his papers are. Fascinating stuff, yeah. you know. Um, but, uh, you know, in this particular instance, they were they told me there was nothing that they could do because, you know, all that stuff is still copyrighted by Hammer. And obviously, I guess they're worried about, you know, these scripts being photo, you know, photocopied and then put online for people to, you know, just download. And I don't, I don't know why, because they're not making the movie. But anyway, apparently... What I used to have to do back in the old days is pay expensive shipping fees for interlibrary loans and get the book shipped from, say, Los Angeles to Vermont and then photocopy it myself and then send it back. Right, yeah. That's the, which I was told was like the, you, you know, you know the, well, in our case, um, we were told that the option was for us to come to, you know, this university in England and we would be allowed access to you know the hammer archives and we could look at it which you know for all of us involved in you know this project was not a, a financial possibility yeah. though we, we kind of joked at our panel that if anybody wanted to you know we would start like a kickstarter or something um you know to to yeah. try and get this done uh and and i don't know maybe it'll be something that we'll return to in the future so uh, I know John is is definitely wanting to update his his books. He might have already on Nessie. So with you know some of the information that we dug up. So and uh, Greg is some of those uh, Japanese concept art pieces. Yeah. Before all I'd ever seen was a poster that said Brian Forbes Nessie, and I'm assuming Brian Forbes worked for Hammer. Yeah. Um. I believe that's right. Yeah, it, it has. Uh, it has been a minute since I've uh, looked at some of this stuff, so it's. Uh, I might have to try and refresh my memory yeah. about this. But yeah, it's. It might, um, it might be smart to point out to people that in the mid to late seventies, Nessie was a hot property. That at in during the mid to late seventies. More people believed in Nessie than at any other time, primarily because of the Rhine's underwater photographs. And then on top of that, you had the Zulia Maru incident, which yeah. really brought to a bigger pitch. Yeah, then those were two things that when we did the presentation, I made sure that we, uh, we touched on, um, because I felt that that was really important, was like we definitely talked about, you know, um, yeah, the, the Rhine's photographs and about how popular Nessie was, uh, particularly in the 1970s. And then, you know, and, and not just in uh, Europe and America, but in Japan as well. Um, and, you know, Nessie had been pretty popular in Japan going all the way back into the 60s. There's an episode of um, the 1966 
uh, Japanese superhero show Ultraman, episode 10, The Mysterious Dinosaur Base, where Ultraman fights what is uh, clearly a remodeled Godzilla suit, where they've taken a Godzilla suit and put a, a frill on its neck like an African, or sorry, not African, um, Australian frilled lizard. Uh, you know, and they, they call it a new monster called um, uh, Zerus. But in fact, if you pay attention to the dialogue in the episode, um, Zerus is supposed to be the Loch Ness monster, the mad scientist who's been raising him in secret, claims that he, you know, got the egg from the shores of Loch Ness. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, Nessie had definitely been a, a pop culture staple uh, over there, over there as well yeah. for, for a while. And then, yeah, also yeah. we definitely talked about the the Zui Maru incident. Yeah. Well, there was also a, a pseudo Nessie movie made by, I think, by A called uh, The Legend of Dinosaurs and Monster Birds. Yeah, so that's actually, um, so Legend of Dinosaurs and Monster Birds. And yeah, if you get if you get John on here, um, he'll talk your ear off because he loves that movie. Um, I I'm a little more lukewarm on it. I I don't think it's that great, but it's uh, it's it's interesting. It was actually it was, it was actually uh, Toei, they um, Toei Studios. Okay. Uh, so who who did that movie? That was their attempt to cash in on the success of Jaws, um, and they spent a lot of money on that film actually, including uh. You know, buying brand new state-of-the-art cameras and everything. They they poured a lot into it, and yeah, it's this weird sort of film where there's an earthquake and it it wakes up a an, an elasmosaurus and a rampharinicus that's been hibernating underneath yeah. the um, suicide forest, actually, or the, the famous suicide forest on the base of Mount Fuji, and uh, they start you know rampaging you know across like the japanese kind of countryside and it all culminates with like this big attack on a uh, on a country music festival yeah. in japan so, the japanese country the hot cowboy ads that's yeah that's a visual. but it, but it's also weird because literally um you know that movie that movie was made to cash in on jaws but it literally comes out a a week after the Zui Maru incident. Ah, so it was like the perfect timing. Yeah, there's no way they could have coordinated that on purpose. So. Exactly. Yeah, it's just it's just this very weird kind of coincidence. But it was it was again, yeah, the perfect. Um, it was one of those sort of perfect storm kind of uh, of incidents, yeah. you know. And, and the Zui Maru incident, you know, as we talked about this during the panel as well, you know, has its place sort of in the history of, of the kaiju genre because uh, it, it gets name dropped in uh, the 1991 Godzilla movie, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. They mention it. Yeah. Um, and, and have, actually, you, have you ever seen Bermuda Depths? Um, I have made a couple of attempts to watch Bermuda Depths, and I've never been able to finish it. Well, Zuya Maru's mentioned in that, too. Okay, that's good to know. I, I might have to try and make another attempt to, to finish Bermuda Depths, but that's... Yeah, and Bermuda Depths was a... Um, that was a co-production, I believe, between uh, Ronkin Boss and Subaraya, who are the same yeah. people that did uh, Ultraman. So, yeah. yeah. 
it was yeah, Zui Maru was big in Japanese pop culture for a while there. Yeah, definitely. But, well, um, any, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, no, yeah, go ahead. I was just uh, yeah. What were you gonna say, Scott? I just uh, wanted what uh, what final thoughts you want to bring on any of this stuff. Um, whatever you want to discuss is fine. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, just, you know, I mean, uh, you know, if people are, are interested, I guess, um, you know, in, in the kind of work I'm doing and, and uh, those sorts of things, you know, you can, uh, I have an Academia EDU page, so you can just search Justin Mullis Academia EDU and it'll come up. I have a lot of my published articles are up there including the one that I wrote for the Routledge collection that I mentioned on, uh, on crypto fiction. So you can get that whole thing there. There's a couple other uh, pieces up there that I've written, not a lot of them having to do with cryptozoology. Some of them are my other explorations into um, religion and popular culture. But also I am currently doing book reviews over at uh, the website, um, uh, adventures in poor taste uh, for their science, um, their science, and and now also their film section. Uh, so, and a lot of the the my editor Russ Dobler is uh, very um, very friendly to topics concerning cryptozoology, and I get to pick the books I review. So, pretty much every review that I've done for him for the last year now um, has either been relating to cryptozoology or paleontology. And there's been a few other things in there uh, uh, you know, scattered around as well. And I've written about some other stuff. I, I just did a, article, or a review for a, a new book on the movie Nosferatu for their film section. Um, and I also just wrote my first article for them. Russ has been trying to get me to write an article for them for a little while. And I wrote one on kind of the cryptozoological history of the Lambton worm. Um, yeah, yeah, I so. saw that. I, I've seen some of your stuff at a blog called Man Creates Dinosaurs. Is that correct? Yeah, so I have, I do have a blog called Man Creates Dinosaurs. It has not been updated now for almost a year um, because I got... Uh, it, it, it's, it was kind of funny because, yeah, it was basically once, um, I wasn't, I wasn't teaching regularly and I needed, uh, and I was, you know, in the process of shopping around for doctoral programs in between doing conference presentations and, and writing, uh, essays and such, I needed another kind of outlet I decided for some of my interests. And so I started a blog on Tumblr. Uh, called Man Creates Dinosaurs to write about some of this stuff. And um, it, was, it was fairly popular, I understand, by Tumblr standards. Um, you know, I wrote a few things. I know Darren Nash reblogged or uh, shared some of the stuff that I wrote on Twitter that he found interesting. Um, so, and, uh, but around the end of 2018... I started doing book reviews on there and those were really popular. And that's partly what got, I think Russ's attention. And he reached out to me with the offer to start doing reviews for 
uh, adventures in, in poor taste. Uh, and so as a result, um, you know, between that and various other projects that were going on for me in 2019, including the Nessie panel and some conferences I was doing, um, I kind of just let the blog go to sort of the wayside. And so, uh, it has not, it's not been updated in a while. I'm thinking about trying to get back to it. Um, and, and writing some stuff again now that I have a little bit more free time with everything going on with the pandemic. So, but definitely that's another place if people want to find some of my stuff, uh, go check that out. I've written, uh, a couple articles there on cryptozoology. One of them is just sort of a personal kind of almost sort of memoir about my experiences with cryptozoology growing up, my changing thoughts about, you know, the field. Um, I wrote, uh, I've, I wrote a piece about, I've written a couple pieces dealing with this idea about extinction, you know, um, I wrote, I actually, uh, very directly involved this sort of thing. I wrote a, I wrote a piece on there because, uh, uh, I guess, are you, are you familiar with, uh, um, our resident uh, lake monster in North Carolina, Scott Normie, the Lake Norman monster. Yes, I, I'm yes. not. Very, I'm not very impressed with the evidence, to tell the truth. Right, I'm, I'm. I'm not either. I, I. I. Especially, you know, I think it's kind of hard, you know, to argue that there's a any kind of Mesozoic marine reptile in a man-made lake that's, you know only you know a few decades old yeah. um, but uh it, it nevertheless that is a thing and um what was that was that i'm i'm trying to remember now it was like either 2018 or 2017 we had a uh um a, a japanese film crew come out to lake norman i live not far i, I can drive to lake norman it's maybe a three-hour drive on a a bad traffic day so I, I live pretty close to it. But yeah, we had a Japanese film crew come out and, um, uh, you know, do it was apparently for, for a show. I believe it was called like What a Mystery or something, uh, you know, come out to, to film at Lake Norman uh, because of the Lake Norman monster. And so that got some publicity. And then right on the heels of that, uh, the Raleigh News and Observer, which is, you know, the first or second largest paper in North Carolina, I can't remember now, um, published this article, um, which is what really prompted me to write my blog piece. Um, they, they published this article about uh, pterodactyl sightings in and around Raleigh and elsewhere in uh, North Carolina, which, you know, again, like I said, my art, I'm, I'm not interested necessarily in getting into the argument about whether or not these things exist but you know again i i found it totally unconvincing um you know borderline hilarious in certain cases and yeah. i i was particularly uh put off by the fact that the raleigh news and observer decided that they wanted um their kind of expert voice in that article to be uh jonathan whitcomb who is uh, a young Earth creationist, he self-styles himself as well a cryptozoologist. But I, I don't know how familiar you are with him, but he has made some particularly um, ludicrous claims over the years. So, 
you see what you're talking about is a particular subset of cryptozoology that I refer to as craptozoology. <laughs> the fringe of just ridiculous crap. Like last week, I don't know if you saw this, there was a report from a place called Brampton, Ontario. The people had reported an alligator and they even had video of it and the police went to investigate and it was a beaver. <laughs> you see, you know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, you have to separate the, uh, the, the wheat from the shaft, you know, and there's a lot of shaft. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, that's, um, which is, you know, that's, you know, that, yeah, yeah, there is, there's, that's a whole sort of other kind of side issue, which is something, again, coming from a religious studies background that I'm very interested in is kind of this relationship between, uh, you know, cryptozoology and, and young earth creationism, uh, you know, which is, which make for, for very interesting sort of, uh, bedfellows, um, you know, yeah. but, uh, yeah. I have I have creationist friends, but we just don't discuss religion. And you know, we're both hunting for the same quarry. I just happen to believe that it's possible they could have survived millions of years, as a as opposed to six thousand. You know, so right. Yeah. Yeah. It it is it is very interesting um, how much young Earth creationists have sort of. Uh, both openly and kind of covertly sort of latched on to cryptozoology, um, you know, as it, you know, uh, where, you know, some, some of them, some of them will say it, they'll, they'll talk about it, talk about it openly. Um, you know, I have, I have books that were written by young earth creationists in my library, um, you know, where they, you know, we'll, we'll use the term cryptozoology and stuff, but also like, uh, you know, you have in, in Kentucky, not that far from Big Bone Lick, you know, you have the Creation Museum run by Ken Ham. And, oh, yeah. uh, I watched the documentary on that. Yeah, there's, um, you know, they, they uh, you know, they've, they have, a couple years ago opened an exhibit uh, called Dragon Legend which is full of all kinds of like cryptozoological claims and conjectures and things. Um, they never use the word, you know, but it's, it's very clear that that's where they're getting their material from, you know, but they, you'll, you'll never hear them say that. So I'm familiar with Carl Ball and Kent Hoven and Don Patton and all those guys. I've read. Okay. Yeah. And I know they've got caught up with things like the, uh, Taxidermy Lake Erie Baby Monster and uh, the Pelosi footprints, the human footprints. I know about all that stuff. So. Right, yeah, right, I'm yeah. And a lot yeah. of green key bands, too. Yeah, there's, you know, there's some, yeah, there's some interesting stuff in there and probably like a lot of things that, you know, me and you will have to talk about in the future. And I'd be curious to get your, your yeah, two cents about because, you know, I'm, I'm definitely. You know, I'm, there's definitely some stuff in there that I'm interested in doing kind of more work on in the future, you know, especially yeah. with regards to, like, the African dinosaur stuff, like Mokalia Mamembe and things. So, yeah. you know, um, which, again, yeah, like, the creationists seem to be very interested in and very keen on, and I'm, I'm 
I really don't see how the discovery of a living dinosaur would upset evolution. It would just say that, okay, this animal survived for 66 million years, undetected. We didn't know about it. That still wouldn't upset the whole theory of evolution, as far as I can see. I mean, we know the silly can't survive, so that didn't upset right. the whole evolution. So, you know, it's a big deal, you know? Yeah, well, I, I think that it's derived partly from a... a misunderstanding about you know what evolution actually is because you know because i i think that when you really um you know i don't know if you've ever read uh, i i highly recommend um uh the book the creationists um by uh don't know it okay yeah by uh, uh numbers um uh, i can never remember his numbers I can find it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ronald Numbers. That's it. I always, I always think. I know it's an R, and I can never remember what it. Ronald Numbers, uh, you know, is a, a scholar. He he's written the book on the history of the Young Earth Creationist movement from a from an academic perspective, and it's called the Creationists. And he's also it, that is also I think an example of great sort of objective scholarship because it is not Numbers' intent in that book to argue whether or not young earth creationism is valid or not. He is simply documenting it as a part of our, of our history, right? The history of this movement. Um, well, anybody that knows anything about it can look at radiometric dating and look at the animals found in the different ages. And the two best examples I can think of are horse evolution and whale evolution. You know? I mean, it's yeah. just self-explanatory, you know? Yeah, but like Numbers points out in this book that like, you know, the big, you know, there's there's such an emphasis on this argument about creation versus evolution that what seems to get overlooked is that what makes creationists nervous, young earth creationists particularly, is not so much the idea of evolution because some of them have even kind of copped to this and, you know, they're willing to acknowledge evolution to an extent. Um, while others are really hard-lined about, like, no evolution at all. It, it's a spectrum. But what seems to really make them nervous is, um, you know, this idea of, of the Earth being millions and millions of years old. Um, you know, and, and, yeah, so their idea seems to be that, you know, if they can find... That, that, so their ideas about what Darwinian evolution is are, are very closely conflated with this idea of geological deep time, even though that's an idea that was originated by James Hutton decades before Darwin. Yeah. Um, but that seems to be their much bigger kind of hang-up um, for, for various reasons. And as a result, they've sort of conflated the two. So for them, Darwinian evolution and deep time are sort of one and the same, and they feel yeah. that, you know... And, and again, there's somehow this idea that if they can find living representatives of supposedly prehistoric animals, then ergo that negates the idea of prehistory. And so then there is no deep time and the Earth is only 6,000 years old. And that then, you know, would throw Darwinian evolution out the window since, you know, evolutionists generally agree that you need millions of years for life to evolve. Well, that's, that's sort of their, their train of thought, as confused as it is. 
Intelligent design is an attempt to compromise. To to a degree, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, but yeah, so it's 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 very interesting, you know, the um, yeah, the, the the conflation there of those two things, and you know what they're going out and and doing and stuff. There's a, you know, if you if you again if you visit Adventures in Poor Taste and look at my book reviews. Um, the very first book I reviewed for them actually was a book called uh, Fire Breathing Dinosaurs by a, a North Carolina paleontologist called uh, or named Phil Center, um, yep. who, who has done a, a tremendous job of wading through all of the young earth creationist literature and kind of evaluating it and, um, you know, cataloging it and, and, you know, pointing out where, you know, a lot of this is. Um, you know, I wish, uh, yeah. I recently read his article about the uh, supposed Aboriginal plesiosaur art. Yeah. He's that. He did a great job of it. He found uh, an illustration in a dinosaur, an old kid's dinosaur book, that looks exactly like the Aboriginal drawing. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, I, I have a copy of that book actually. Uh, that and it, yeah, all the artists. And it was done. Oh, I'm trying to remember. Zallinger did the Peabody mural. So. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. That's yeah. I I like Center's um, articles again. Kind of, I like Center's articles a lot more uh, than that particular book, which kind of like the the disentangled is uh, stupidly expensive to try and get a hold of a copy of that book. And I know um, I've talked to to Phil Center since he wrote it. Uh, we had a, a very uh, uh, polite and I felt productive but spirited email exchange because, again, if you read my reviews, I had some problems with that book that he wrote, even though I think, again, he's done a tremendous job. Um, and he, he's told me that he's working now on sort of a, a second version of it that he hopes will be more affo affordable and I hope will address some of the issues that the first one has. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the work is out there. You know, on um, uh, on you know the the confluence of creationism and uh, cryptozoology. So that's you know yep. really interesting stuff. Uh, you know, un unfortunately, uh, you know, un unfortunately, it's not an avenue that I guess more people are interested in in looking at right now academically because creationism is is so heavily you know, derided and ridiculed as being such pseudoscience. Um, that wow. was actually, before I hit on the Jefferson thing, Jefferson thing, I actually attempted for a while to try and get into a PhD program on the basis of wanting to look at sort of the relationship between young earth creationism and how they used like paleontology and cryptozoology to make their arguments. And the problem that I kept running into was that Nobody wanted to, you know, sponsor that kind of research. Um, and I talked to a lot of scholars who are all, you know, experts in the field of young earth creationism. Uh, you know, again, looking at it from this outside academic perspective. And they all, you know, said, yeah, you're going to, that's the problem. You know, you know, we, you know, if you, you know, people, people seem to like our research, but they don't want to sponsor more of it, so. 
too bad because I think every avenue should be explored. Yeah. You know? So, well, I definitely think that, you know, every, you know, I, one of the things that I really like about going back to Brian Regal, one of the things that he said that I really strongly agree with, you know, is that you, is, you know, the history of science should not be written solely from the quote-unquote winner's perspective, right? Um, yeah. You've got it. You, you need to talk about all of the other avenues, what are, you know, what are often labeled pseudoscience, which is a phrase that I have issues with. Um, you know, but you, you need to look at this from, from every avenue. And, I mean, that's why he wrote, that's why Regal says, you know, he wrote his book, searching for Sasquatch because he was like, you know, somebody needs to tell the story about the people who went out there looking for Bigfoot and the Yeti and the Almas and all of these things, because, you know, they weren't just, you know, crackpots or nut jobs or what have you, you know, a lot of these people were, you know, dedicated, you know, PhD scientists, experts in zoology, expert naturalists, you know, people who held, really prominent positions at universities, at museums like Smithsonian. They thought this stuff was worth looking into. And, you know, there's a story to tell there about why. Um, yeah. There's, there's, so, a lot of, there's a lot of weird back alleys that most people don't know about. Like there was a German anatomist named Gustav Steinman that seriously believed that dolphins were direct descendants of ichthyosaurs. And certain types of whales were descended from plesiosaurs and mosasaurs. And this guy was serious. This was back in the early 20th century, around the 1920s. Yeah. Never hear about this guy. Right. Yeah. But he was serious. Yeah, which is, which is, you know, unfortunate. It's so often the case. It's like I just did a review for, uh, you know, again, what was a really wonderful little book called um, The Great Naturalists. Uh you know, which I gave an overall like glowing review to because it's this wonderful little pocket-sized guide to like the sort of great men and women of you know science going from like Aristotle all the way up to you know the end of the 19th century. Um, but the only criticism I had for that book when I did my review is that you know they don't talk about you know they talk about all these people, but they don't talk about any of the you know quote unquote weird or fringe ideas that some of them had. I mean, they dedicate a whole section of the book to Conrad Gesner, who's considered by some people the father of modern zoology, and they never mention the fact that Gesner wholeheartedly believed that dragons were real biological animals. Bestiaries. Yeah. Um, You know, anyway. Yeah, you know, I mean... People make mistakes. Look how long Pilbound Man was taken seriously, you know? Right. For many years. So, you know, sometimes it takes years to find out you're on the wrong track, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, it's still, you know, even even then, you know, it's like, you know, there's still important questions that you, you can ask about, you know, why did Gesner think that dragons existed? What was, you know, if, if he was wrong, if there were no dragons... You know, what led him to those conclusions? And that kind of stuff is important because, you know, if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want history to repeat itself, you don't want to go down those same wrong avenues, and you need to understand what he was doing wrong if he was indeed wrong, you know. So. Yeah, so, yeah. 
Um, so they've been hunting for Nessie for 90 years. They've been hunting for Sasquatch for 60. And we're still not there. So I don't know, you know. Wait yeah. and see. Eventually people will give up, I assume. But, you know, I'm not ready to give up yet. So we'll see what happens. Um, any, any last things you want to add? Uh, no, um, you know, I think I've, you know, again, I've kind of, uh, you know, I've, I've plugged my research and what I'm doing, you know, again, I, it was really great to, you know, come on here and, and talk to you about what I'm doing and, you know, okay. I, I, you know, get, get some of that information out to people who might yeah. be interested in it. So I thought it was fascinating. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Scott. So. Yeah. Well, um, I guess we'll hang it up if you want to, unless you got any last thing you want to add. Uh, no, not not at this time. I would just tell you, again, if, if people are interested in what I'm doing, you know, keep an eye, um, you know, on my Academia EDU page, and maybe Man Creates Dinosaurs, and, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, as I start in the fall, working towards, uh, you know, my, my PhD and doing this kind of research, I'll have a lot of, uh, more of the stuff will kind of come out. The, the Jefferson stuff is coming out in a preliminary form. Um, I've written a chapter for a book that's coming out from Lexington Press. I believe the title is going to be of Gods and Monsters. Uh, so um, I'm not 100% sure on that. We're in the final editorial stages of that. So again, if that's something that people are are interested in the sort of early version of, of some of those arguments will be in that book. And, you know, I'm hoping to expand on it in all directions, dig more into Jefferson's connection to sea serpents, you know, other early figures in America's connection to uh, some of the same kind of stuff to different sorts of cryptids and, uh, you know, hopefully paint a, a really interesting um, kind of different picture than what, you usually get about, you know, the the founding of this country and kind of, uh, you know, the, the people the people who who founded it because I, I certainly don't think that you know as as all all of the amazing achievements of Thomas Jefferson, you know, he's not regarded as sort of a pioneering cryptozoologist and I think that that should be rectified uh, because I think that he really oh, really did re really was so. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis.